The first reference to the United States having a national motto came from the pen of Francis Scott Key in 1814 when he wrote what would become our national anthem. Interestingly enough, the national anthem has many verses and not just the one we sing as the national anthem. In the fourth verse, Key wrote this, and this be our motto, in God is our trust and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. In 1864, the words, in God we trust, first appeared on the two-cent coin. It's no longer in circulation. Long before that, 1694, during the planting of the colonies, the Carolina penny was minted, and that penny bore the inscription, God preserve Carolina. Sorry, Clemson fans. 60 years ago, only 60 years ago, 1957, in God we trust was added to our paper currency. And in the last 15 years, there have been many campaigns and battles and wars to have those words removed along with the words one nation under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. There have even been battles over license plates that include the words in God we trust that are produced by the individual states to be purchased by their citizens who have licenses to drive vehicles in those states. Several courts of appeals have upheld the rights of states to make license plates and offer those to people who want a license plate that says, in God we trust, or one nation under God. They can offer that design along with any number of designs to their citizens. The trouble with all of this is, in all of these recent battles, what would seem like a victory for Christianity is really an indictment. Because if you look behind why those decisions were made and why it is legal to have those words on our currency and our places of law and our places of judicial court, um, it's a very different story. The Indiana Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court too, by the way, um, have argued for the constitutionality of saying or printing things like, in God we trust. And their argument is based on a phrase called ceremonial deism. Ceremonial deism. This is a term that was first used in 1962 during the height of the civil rights movement by the former dean of the Yale Law School. He was able to successfully show that in the American conscience and culture, these phrases have simply become ritualistic. He argued that they are nothing more than words. They are mottos without meaning. That phrase, ceremonial deism, has been used to defend the opening of the Supreme Court where the marshal comes out and declares, God save the United States and this honorable court. And it has been used to defend our national anthem, the Pledge of Allegiance, and the motto on our currency. In a Supreme Court case, Elk Grove Unified School District versus New Dow, Justice O'Connor defended religious expressions in the public square because they, as a form of ceremonial deism, have lost, through rote repetition, any significant religious content. So, we can say in our public schools, one nation under God, and we can carry around money in our pockets that have the motto, in God we trust. We can have it on our license plate. We can blare it everywhere. We can legally do this under our Constitution because in the eyes of the law, those words don't really mean what they sound like they mean. 
They're just mottos. They're just declarations that we're civilized people and we're not savages. You are free to say them without being obligated to believe them or to live by them. In other words, you can say, in God we trust, but you don't have to trust in him. James highlights for us in James chapter 2 three kinds of faith. Faith that has no pulse. Faith that has no point. And faith that has no limits. He talks about those interspersed in the verses. But we want to break those three down today. And we'll have have to have a little bit of a theological discussion around faith and grace and works and faith alone. So let's be clear about how our discussion is going to fit into the gospel and how it fits into grace alone and how it fits into the rest of the teachings of the New Testament. Is James here contradicting other teachings in the New Testament? At a high level, the Bible does not contradict itself. It is inspired by God and therefore it is consistent throughout. Unfortunately, it has to be put in words. And when it's put into human words, human interpretations come to play. Uh, If I go to uh, England and I say, you guys want to play some football? Somebody's going to pull out a soccer ball. And now I'd like to play football. No, that's what we're playing. No, that's soccer. No, that's football. We're talking about two different things. We're using the same words. Why? Because human words, just like everything else that's human, is fallible. So we need to look at this really quick at a high level and then... The rest of it makes some sense. Look at Romans 3, 27 through 31. This is Paul writing to Romans. And again, remember, Paul in Romans is writing to people who are not believers. They are Gentiles. James is writing to believers, to the church. So Paul writing here says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? And when he says that, he's talking about himself and the apostles. Can we boast that we've done anything? No, because our acquittal, our pardon is not based on obeying the law, it is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Now, we can spend two semesters of seminary basically talking about Romans and James and how that fits into our theology. But here here it is at a high level, okay? What saves, works or faith? God's verdict of not guilty and his imputing his own righteousness to me and you through Christ at the beginning of the Christian life are by faith alone, through grace. We trust God's free grace to forgive us and to save us and acquit us and to account us as righteous because of Christ. Okay, I want to be as clear as I can be on that. It is in God's grace and through his power alone that we are saved. There is nothing we can do to earn it, nor would there be anything that is even possible of buying it for us. It is through God's grace alone. As I said, Paul is writing to unbelievers and he's writing to them about how to define their salvation, how to define it. What is my salvation? It is through Christ by faith. 
James is writing to believers on how to demonstrate their salvation. What demonstrates the fact that I am in Christ through faith? And surely this makes sense. It can't be enough, and I want to want to set aside a little bit of evangelical heresy this morning, okay? Some things we've done in our churches. It can't be enough that you come and say, oh Jesus, please save me, I'm a sinner, and I want to go to heaven, I love you, come into my heart, amen. And that's it. And now I'm good to go, I'm gold. And now I can go right back to doing what I was doing. Paul in many, many, many chapters in the New Testament says that's ridiculous. That is not the way it works. And in fact, at one point he says, should we continue in our sin so that God's grace can abound and be poured out on us more? No, he says God forbids that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a real faith in Christ demonstrated by what we do. Paul is teaching the unbeliever how to be justified before God. James is talking to the believer about how to be justified before men, including your own self, my own self. Gone are the days when uh, my secretary types my letters. Word processing is so good and so fast that by the time I dictated a letter and sent it to my secretary to type it, and then she sent it back to me to review it, and I changed it and sent it. We've wasted tons and tons of time. I type my own stuff. At the bottom, though, we still maintain the convention of putting in the initials of the person who's authoring the letter with a slash and then the initial of the person who typed the letter. And instead of putting my initials twice, I always put MOS as the person who typed the letter. That means my own self. (laughs) But to justify ourselves, first, we got to justify the fact that we are in Christ to ourselves and then to the world. Yeah, still confused? hope not. Let's look at this. Look at Romans 6, 20 through 23. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. Paul is playing on words here. I love it. You were free from the obligation to do right. You didn't have to. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and you've become slaves to God. Look at this. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. What is the difference between holiness and being in Christ? Holiness is being like Christ. When I trust him, I'm in Christ. Becoming holy is becoming like Christ. God says, be holy because I'm holy. Another word we use for that is sanctification. That's the big seminary word sanctification. It just means I'm becoming more and more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus in Matthew 5, which we talked about several weeks ago, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus says, you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise, not you, your Father, God, the Lord Jesus. 
All right, so this is the interplay between faith and works. We take Christ at his word. We accept the truth of God and Christ and who he is. We trust him alone for salvation. We put our faith in that alone and nothing else. And we become a child of God through that grace and through that faith. And then we do the things that a child of God does. And that's what James is talking about. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. But the kind of faith that saves us is never alone. It's faith alone that saves us. But the kind of faith that saves us is never alone. There is always evidence. So to that point, let's go back to James. So the first type of faith that we talked about that James is trying to show here is a faith that has no pulse. It is dead. If you look at verses 17 and 26, James says, unless our faith produces good works, we can determine that it's dead, just like we can determine a human is dead when she has no pulse or when she's not breathing. All right, somebody has no pulse, not breathing, no heartbeat. I can make a determination within a certain amount of time from a medical standpoint, that person's dead. Okay, that's what we call times of death. We look at all the evidence within a person's life and in their body and determine this person is no longer living. James says, so you see, faith itself isn't enough Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead. And here's that word again. James loves this word, useless. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And he gives some examples here that we're going to talk about in just a second. To determine if you're alive in Christ, the world cannot examine your faith any more than a doctor can examine your thoughts. Okay. The only way that a doctor can know what you're thinking is for you to tell him. We do not have a machine, regardless of all the fun sci-fi out there. We do not have the technology to tap into the human brain and tell anyone else around what you're actually thinking. We can tell you what signals the brain is sending to different parts of your body. We can tell you what signals the brain is not sending, what centers of the brain control what things, but we cannot tell you that the person likes broccoli. The only way that a doctor can know you like broccoli is if you say, Doc, I like broccoli. The world can't determine if you have any faith Any more than a doctor can look at your thoughts unless there's evidence. You tell it, you show it. (laughs) One of the big myths, hey, it's who you are on the inside that matters. It's who you are on the inside that matters. That's a myth, guys. There is one, probably one little pocket where that applies and if somebody calls you ugly, and then your mama says, baby, it's what's on the inside that matters. It doesn't matter if you're the ugly duckling. Right? That's what mamas say. That's, that's a myth. One of my favorite lines from Batman Begins, Christian Bale. I love Christopher Nolan. Rachel, this is, this is not me. I, I, I am more. 
That's fine, Bruce. It's not who you are on the inside that counts. It's what you do that defines you. That preaches. James would have stood up in the theater and went, that lady right there. It's dead. It's dead. Ooh, I got faith. Where? Where, where did she go? Oh, you were talking, you were talking, never mind. Second kind of faith is faith that has no point. This is our ceremonial deism. Pointless. Doesn't mean anything anymore. Sandra Day O'Connor, one of the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, stood up, wrote it down, put her signature on it. We can say those things because they don't matter no more. It's fine. No, no issue with separation of church and state. We say those things just as much as we say goodbye or see you later. Have a good day. Same thing. Just a motto. Just a creed. Look at verse 15. James says, suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing. Now listen, look, look what he's talking about. He's talking about believers. You see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. The context here in the Greek is actually that they don't have their daily allotment of food. It means they are going hungry. It doesn't mean that they missed lunch that day. This means you see a brother or sister within your body. Imagine this person walks into church. They're going to leave here. Y'all going to go to Applebee's? I hope not. You're going to go somewhere to, to eat food. Picking on Eric. You're going to go somewhere to eat food. They're not. They ain't got no food. They don't have any money to get food. That's what he's talking about here. Same thing with the clothing. It doesn't mean that they're naked. It means they don't have clothes to wear that are appropriate. They're coming in here in tatters. So you see somebody in tattered clothes. They have no financial means. They're not going to eat that day. It puts it in a little bit of context here. And he says, you say, hey, what's up, man? Hey, goodbye. Have a good day, buddy. Hey, stay warm, man. Hope you get some clothes. Hope that food thing works out. We look at that as a, we look at that as something funny. I mean, that, that's, James is goofing us here, right? But isn't this what we do? I mean, that, that's why James is talking about it. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. Same problem. Hey, hope everything works out for you. I love that one. That's one of my favorite. Hope everything works out for you. Yeah. What good does that do? James says. That's not my words. That's his. People with pointless faith substitute words for deeds. They talk a big game. A lot of talkers out there. One of my favorite things about watching sports is to watch the talkers. The gabbers, defensive back coming up to the line. Hey, I got you. I got you. Oh, you beat me for a touchdown. Oh. Why? Because I ain't no good at football. I can talk a big game, though, boy. Torch for four catches and two touchdowns. Awesome. The people who least live out their creeds are the same people who shout the loudest about them for some reason. The paralysis that affects their hands does not seem to interfere with their mouths. Alexander McLaren. 
I got to be honest with you. I feel James on this one, guys. I feel him deep down in my bones. I, I am so beyond the point of weariness when it comes to people who want to talk about all the stuff they care about and they never do a thing to show they have faith in a holy God and in a Christ that saved them and rescued them from the slum. Just blip, 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 blip. Oh, this, that, that, this, that. I this, I that. Oh, I was reading this week. Oh, let me post this on Facebook. When's the last time you gave somebody something to eat? When's the last time you told somebody about the gospel? Oh, I don't do that. Makes me really uncomfortable. I really like to read Francis Chan, though. I, I, I watch Matt Chandler's stuff all the time. It's amazing. I think you guys should do it more like Matt Chandler. Okay. Indifference to the suffering of others, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, is the mark of a faith that's worthless. Indifference. That's indifference is actually illegal in the state of South Carolina. If I am sitting out on a dock at Lake Murray and a boater comes by and crashes his boat and goes in the water and he's calling for help and I'm sitting on the dock sunbathing and I got my life jacket right there and I'm like, oh, that dude is drowning. Oh, man. Anybody, anybody going to help that guy? No? He drowns. I go to jail. Seinfeld sort of spoofed. In fact, the last episode of Seinfeld was about this issue. I think Jerry Seinfeld has some regrets about that one. But it's illegal. If you have the opportunity to help and the means, and you will not be putting your own life in danger, you have to help. Not if you're a Christian, though. (laughs) I'm a Christian. All right, go help your neighbor. Nope. I got stuff to do, man. I got places to be. See, I scheduled to be on vacation this week. I scheduled my stuff. James says in verses 19 and 20, man, saying but you believe in God is big whoop. He says, good for you. Awesome. The demons believe. Lots of people believe. Very few professing believers That number is still hovering around 80% according to survey data in the United States. 80% of the people say, I believe in God. Most of the major religions of the world line up on monotheism, meaning there's one God. You talk to the Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Christians. They all believe in one God. Big whoop-de-doo. Pointless faith is merely a recognition that God is. Of course he is. How do you think you got here? It doesn't move us to action. It's a faith that is pointless. It doesn't do anything for us. The demons actually have more faith than we do. Because honestly, it doesn't require their faith. They were there. They were there. When he spoke man into existence. They were there when he stepped down out of glory and took on the life of a baby in a manger. They were there when he hung himself on a cross. 
They were there when he split a tomb wide open and walked out. They were there. They saw it. They believe more than you do. They just don't put the knee on the earth. They just don't put it into action. They don't change who and what they are as a result of who he is. Their faith is pointless. They're fighting a losing battle, and I will say that if you are professing to be in Christ, and it doesn't move you to action, you're fighting a losing battle. I don't believe you. Nobody else is going to believe you. You might not believe yourself. The third type of faith that James wants to highlight for us is this faith that has no limits. And he does that in contrast to these other faiths. This dead faith, this faith is pointless, that's a waste because I don't allow my life, I don't move in the direction of Christ to show that I'm in Christ. What James is saying here is if you don't do that, I don't believe you. And you're probably not in Christ. He wants us to see that there's a faith that has no limits. It's a faith that fully embodies who Christ is. Look at verse 18. Now someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. This person is making the age-old argument that you will hear today. Well, I give to the church and um, there are other people who go out and build wheelchair ramps. There are other people who go out and teach English as a second language. There are other people who go out and work in after school programs. There are other people who go wipe snotty noses. There are other people who give to the needy. There are other people who invest in the lives of their neighbors. I give and I go to church. This person is doing the same thing. He's setting up this duality. Y'all do the work over here and I'm going to do the faith in it over here. Just, I'll be the one that has the faith, and y'all be the ones that do the work. And then we'll be a perfect team. <laughs> James says, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. I will show you that my faith has no limits by what I do. People who have a limitless faith, they're willing to show and tell. We think that's over in kindergarten. Those of you who have kids, remember how excited they get for show and tell? Oh, wow, yeah, now I get to go t- show, show my classmates a little bit about what happens at my house or what I like in my life. I get to show them a part of who I am. My kids used to, I don't know if your kids did, they had to fill the shoebox full of some things that gave people an idea of what they liked or who they are. Obviously, that's not all-encompassing, but it's a show and tell. It's a, look, here's, here's a part of me. We, we don't, we love show and tell in kindergarten. Left it way back there. People who aren't ashamed of the gospel have no fear of humiliation or hardship. Why? Because of their faith. Their faith moves them into those situations. It's a great commercial on TV for the armed services. There's explosions and gunfire and guys are running toward the smoke. Hey, we, we're in the armed forces. We run towards danger. That's what people with faith do. People with faith walk out in the middle of a coliseum. Look across, there's a bunch of lions. They catch hands and go, bring it. Do your worst. 
They don't go run for the hills. And they don't go tell the constable, by the way, the whole Jesus thing. I was just kidding, man. I need to get out of here. I'm going to go sit in the stands. Uh, you guys got hot dogs up there? Great. Perfect. Perfect. In verses 21 through 25, he talks about two examples of faith pre-Christ. He does this purposefully because he's talking about people who had not even seen the living Christ. All right, so these are two people who don't even know who Jesus is. They haven't experienced the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And he's talking about their faith and how it moved them to action. He uses Abraham as an example. Abraham is a patriarch. He's the guy for people who are Jews. The one. Still is. Okay? He's at the top of the food chain for people who are Jews. Rahab is a non-Jew. She's a Gentile. She is a Canaanite. Even worse, a pagan. She's at the bottom of the food chain. And by her profession, prostitution, she's really at the bottom of the food chain. So he's given us these two examples of two people from very different parts of life and very different ways of looking at them as examples of people who had faith. Abraham's faith is shown by what he does. He believes in God. It is counted to him for righteousness. Abraham shows he believes in God because when God says, leave your country, get your dad and your wife and your stuff and go to a country I'll show you later. Well, where am I going? I just head west by southwest and I'll let you know when you get there. Just that direction. All right. Abraham doesn't, okay. Yeah, no, God said it. Let me get my stuff. I'm going that way. Abraham and his wife pray and pray and pray, 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 pray for kids. They don't have any kids. No kids. They're very old. God says, I'm going to give you a kid. They laugh at God. Sarah gets pregnant. Has Isaac. Isaac starts to grow. Becomes a young man. God comes to Abraham one day and says, I need you to give him back to me. Huh? No, give him back to me. Pick him up. Put him on a donkey. Ride him up the mountain to the altar you guys built up there. Put the wood on it. Strap him to it. Give him back to me. Abraham doesn't tell Sarah. Oh, I wouldn't tell Jenny. <laughs> me and Will going camping. Be back in a couple days, a few hours. Puts him on an altar. Ties him down. Notice Isaac doesn't try to fight his dad. Abraham's old, y'all. Isaac's a young man. He ain't fighting, kicking, screaming. That's not anywhere in there. Pulls out a knife. He doesn't just stand there with a knife. Knife over the head. Angel grabs his hand. Nope, that's enough. There's a ram over there. Go sacrifice that. Now I know you love me. Rahab on the other hand, is in a city being attacked by the Jews as they're taking the promised land that God promised to them. She has really nothing to live for. In fact, she could very well die in the battle. Two spies from Israel come in to check out the city. She not only harbors them, she listens to what they have to say about Yahweh God and believes it. Knowing that her life is in danger, if she helps these men, she does it anyway. She hangs a thread out the window, a rope, lowers these men down outside the wall so they can go back to the camp and tell everybody what's going on ahead of the battle. And then she hangs that red rope out the, out the window again so when they attack, they'll know it's her. 
Rahab lived on the wall, the wall of a city called Jericho. Guess what happened to that wall? Anybody remember? Yeah, obliterated, except for this little strip right here with a red rope hanging down, belonging to Rahab. That's faith that moves you. That is taking something that you heard or read or listened to that sounds like a good idea and making it part of who you are. That is someone who is not afraid and is willing to sacrifice they think, the things they treasure the most in this world for the Lord. Your son, my only son. Mine is nine. Real faith engages in good works with the intellect, with the emotions, and with the sheer force of will borne by the confidence that comes from being in Christ. Real faith moves. It works. I love C.S. Lewis, as though that those of you that know me know well. This is a C.S. Lewis quote. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying that you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint glimpse of heaven is already inside you. So let's do this. Let's reveal through our lives and the work of our hands and the words of our vocabulary and the spirit of our character what Christianity really is about. If Christ is in us, his will and his character will be evident in everything we do. Faith in Christ produces life. Life in Christ produces works. Works for God's glory prove that faith is alive. That's what James is saying here. One more time. Faith in Jesus Christ produces life. Life in Jesus Christ produces good works. Good works for God's glory show that faith is 